Friends, it is so great to be with you at this great Eucharistic Summit put on by our friends at Patchwork Heart Ministry. I am so honored to be a part of this great summit. And today I just wanted to share with you some research I did while I was still a Protestant at Liberty Baptist Theological Seminary. You see, at the time I was studying church history and, you know, I started reading the church fathers and I realized that a lot of what they were saying um, corresponded with the Catholic faith. And so I started digging into the Eucharist a little bit more. And friends, what I found was just amazing. And of course, it would alter the course of my life forever. And so the Eucharist, is it the body and blood of Christ? Or is it just a symbol? That's the question I set out to answer. And so basically, I started from the beginning. So what I did is I went back to scripture. Okay, you see, because many Protestant friends um, look at it as a symbol. Some will say that it's, uh, you know, like the Lutherans, for example, that it's consubstantial. Um, there are some Protestants that believe in kind of a nuanced view of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist. But not a whole lot. And honestly, one of the big objections is that there's... There's this myth that says that the Catholic Church just started believing in the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist after the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And that's just false. Um, the, the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist has been a steady and constant teaching of the Church going back to the time of the Apostles. So, when we talk about the Eucharist, um, one thing that comes to mind is Luke chapter 22, verses 19 through 20, which just says, Then he took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. After, after he did the same with the cup after supper, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant of my blood. We're all very familiar with those words. Now, friends, the word Eucharist comes from the Greek word Eucharista, which means thanksgiving. So the Catholic Church says that the bread and wine present on the altar become the real body and blood of our Lord. Now, it is our participation in worship that's happening here, and our participation in the heavenly banquet on earth. And the Catechism says in paragraph 1324, the Eucharist is the source and summit of our faith. It contains Christ himself. And it is, it's his efficacious sign to be with us until the end of time that allows us to maintain unity with his people and with his church. Like I said just a moment ago, my friends, Catholics believe that a miracle takes place when the bread and wine are consecrated. Within the liturgy of the Eucharist, this takes place in the section titled The Institution Narrative and Consecration. In this institution narrative, the priest says the words uttered by Christ on that night in the upper room at the Last Supper. So just as Christ gave himself under the species of bread and wine, the priest does the same in the liturgy of the Eucharist when he acts in the person of Christ, or in persona, in Christ, persona Christi in Latin. In this document, the United States Conference of Catholic Bishops states, quote, that sacrifice is effected which Christ himself instituted during the Last Supper, when he offered his body and blood under the species of bread and wine, gave them to the apostles to eat and drink, 
and leaving with the latter the command to perpetuate this same mystery. Now that quotation I just gave makes mention of the body and blood of Christ being offered under the species of bread and wine. The church has always taught this, but thanks to Eucharistic controversies that were becoming more prevalent, the church had to formally define this miraculous change. And so at the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215, the church formally defined this word, known as transubstantiation. And this became a dogma and a definitive teaching that must be believed. Transubstantiation is the process by which the substance of bread and wine vanishes in a way that makes room for the body and blood of Christ. And when this happens, the appearance of bread and wine remain. Now, since the appearance of bread and wine remain, this allows us to consume the sacrament. In short, the substance of the material has changed, but the appearance stays the same. This understanding grew over the years as Aristotelian language became more mainstream and understood in a deeper way. St. Thomas Aquinas, in his great work, The Summa Theologica, states, quote, The presence of Christ's true body and blood in the sacrament cannot be detected by sense, nor understanding, but by faith alone, which rests upon divine authority. He shows us his flesh, though it may be in an invisible manner, as a way to strengthen us for the journey of life and to perfect us in faith. Though the word of the, the word transubstantiation did not come about till 1215 at the la, fourth, until the fourth Lateran Council, it doesn't mean that's when the church started teaching this. Some Protestants falsely believe this, but history proves otherwise. Church history shows us from the time of the apostles until the ninth century that the doctrine of the real presence of Christ in the Eucharist basically went unchallenged. Now, what I want to do, my friends, now is look at some biblical evidence for the Eucharist. Because some claim that the Eucharist is not found in Scripture. Now, the Last Supper narratives all describe Jesus as saying, This is my body. This is my blood. And we see that in Matthew 26, 17 through 30. Mark chapter 14, verses 12 through 25. Luke 22, verses 7 through 20. And lastly, in John chapter 13, verses 1 through 30. St. Paul also writes about the body and blood of Christ in the breaking of bread in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 16 through 17, and just a little bit later on in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 to 29. Now, perhaps the strongest biblical evidence comes from Christ himself in John chapter 6, verses 22 through 59, which is known as the bread of life discourse. And this is very telling because in this discourse, Christ loses followers because he's speaking literally about his body and blood. But to understand these passages fully, what I want to do and what I did in my research back when I was a Protestant is go back to the Old Testament. Because the New Testament, these New Testament verses that I just mentioned, employ a theological term known as typology. Now, some of you may be familiar with this term, typology studies events and institutions that foreshadow something greater to come. Now, Dr. Scott Hahn, personal hero of mine, he wrote this, quote, The basis of such study is the belief that God, who providentially shapes and determines the course of human events, infuses those events with a prophetic and theological significance. So understanding typology helps us understand salvation history as something fluid 
and not just as periods that are broken up and are totally independent of each other. You see, my friends, God does not change. And the subtle clues that he gives us in the Old Testament find their final fulfillment in the pages of the New. Now, with that said, we see the beginnings of the Eucharist in the pages of the Old Testament. And there are two items that were significant for my study. One was the bread of the presence in the temple. And then secondly, the man in the desert. And I'll start off with the man in the desert. That takes place in the book of Exodus. Moses, through the grace of God, led the children of Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Though they were in bondage in Egypt, they ate well. They roamed through the desert. And they began to complain about how much better off they were in Egypt. And we see this played out in Exodus chapter 16, verse 2, where we read, The whole congregation of the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. They were understandably afraid and didn't know where their next meal was coming from because that had really always been provided for them in Egypt. Moses took their concerns before the Lord and the Lord responds. In Exodus 16.4, the Lord says, I am going to rain bread from heaven for you. And each day the people shall go out and gather enough for that day. And that way I will test them whether they will follow my instruction or not. This miraculous bread was brought down from heaven every morning and the Israelites were to pick as much as they needed for the day. This is a foreshadowing of what Christ says in the Bread of Life Discourse in John chapter 6. In that discourse, Jesus says that he is the manna that came down from heaven. Now, the Bread of Life Discourse takes up most of John 6, but I only want to focus on a couple verses to prove my point here. And these verses were instrumental in me understanding the Eucharist when I was a Protestant. The first is John chapter 6, verse 32 where Jesus tells the Jews that Moses was not the one that gave the bread from heaven, but the Father gives them true bread from heaven. Jesus is using present tense verbs and not past tense if we were simply discussing what Moses did. The Jews long for the bread that Jesus describes, and he shifts the conversation from the manna to the true bread of life. And we see this in John 6.35 where he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. In John 6, 41, the Jews that were present begin complaining to Jesus because he said that he is the bread of life. When Jesus is encountered, the Jews could not understand why they would be feeding on the living God. Both John 6, 41 and Exodus 16, 2 state that the Jews started complaining. They both started complaining over something that they believed to be literal. The manna in the desert was a real event, as was Jesus saying that his flesh must be eaten. Now, though the Jews were complaining, just like the Israelites in the wilderness, he repeats himself. In John 6.51, Christ says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, friends, as a Protestant, and this is a common objection, as a Protestant, I would say, well, Jesus said he was divine, that he was a door. And he did say those things. He did. There's one key thing here. The people 
that were listening became indignant. Not just angry. They became indignant because they asked among themselves, how, how could this man give us his flesh to eat? You see, they understand that Jesus was talking figuratively when he said he was the vine and he was the door. But the language that Jesus used here, they understood to be literal because that's what Jesus meant. That was a very important turning point in my research into becoming Catholic. If our Lord were speaking metaphorically, why would the people listening take him literally? So Jesus understood this confusion, but he raised the bar. In the very next phrase, he would erase all doubt, and his audience would know exactly what he meant, as if he wasn't clear enough already. So, in John 6.53, Jesus states, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. In this verse, Jesus uses a different Greek verb for the word eat. The verb used by Christ in the, is the Greek word trogo, which means to gnaw, munch, or to crunch. This word is never meant as a literary metaphor in the Greek language, and it's always used in a literal fashion. At this saying, many of those who were following Jesus left. They left because they knew what he meant, and he was being literal. But you notice that Jesus didn't go chasing them down, saying, hold on, hold on. It's a symbol. No, he let them leave. He let them go. He lost followers over the statement. Now, friends, the comparison between Exodus 16, <clears throat> excuse me, and John 6 shows that manna was a prefiguration of the Eucharist. And Pope Emeritus uh, Benedict XVI, he's had this to say about it. The mystery of the Eucharist reveals the true manna, the true bread of heaven, it is God's Logos-made flesh who gave himself up for us in the Paschal mystery. And that comes from his encyclical Verbum Domini in paragraph 54. Now I want to move on to the bread of the presence, which we see in Exodus chapter 25, verse 30, and it's a bread that was continually before the Lord. This bread stood as a reminder to all who saw it that God was always present. The bread was placed on a golden table outside of the Holy of Holies. And every Sabbath, new bread would be placed and priests would eat the old. Four times per year on major feast days, the bread of the presence was shown to the people to remind them that God was with them. The bread of the presence reaches its fulfillment in Christ, who institutes it in the Eucharistic celebration, because it is Christ who sustains our spiritual life. The connection between the bread of the presence is not lost on our Protestant friends, guys. It's in a lot of commentaries. Bible commentators mention this. In fact, Protestant biblical scholar Paul Carlene states, quote, The specially made bread that lay on an ornate table in the holy place in the tabernacle pictures Christ as the one who sustains spiritual life. End quote. The bread consisted of 12 loaves for the 12 tribes of Israel. In the New Covenant, Jesus has 12 disciples to represent the same. As the priests in the Old Testament lifted the bread to show the people that God was with them, Jesus does the same at the Last Supper. Okay, so using the principles of typology and what Jesus stated in John 6, we see Jesus, in his role as high priest, offer himself to be eaten by his disciples. 
And we say that every day in the celebration of the Eucharist at Holy Mass. Pretty powerful stuff when you think about it. Now, I want to go to the New Testament for a moment. So, how about, how about, what about the New Testament? Is there evidence of Eucharist in the New Testament? Now, friends, of course, we just read a little bit from John chapter 6. I want to look at the Gospel of Matthew for just a quick moment. In Matthew 26, 26, we see a very familiar saying for us Catholics. Take, eat, this is my body. You see, the word is, is a crucial component of the study of the Eucharist. Okay? The Greek word used is esti, which is a third-person singular verb, which means to be. So what is even more interesting, I mean, as far as this word is concerned, is its origins. The word esti has its root in the present infinitive Greek verb inai, which means to be, to exist, to be present. So in Matthew 26, 27, Jesus then states, this is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So when Jesus says, this is my body, when he's holding up the bread, just to define the word, he says, this is to be my body. This, my body is present in this. Because those are the verbs that he used in Greek. So the Gospels are pretty clear. The New Testament, the Old Testament is pretty clear. God bless you, friends. Take care.